from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's our conversation, our weekly conversation, in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, family, community, our society, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project of the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And if you visit totalleadership.org, you can find information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. It can be done. I'm also very excited to announce that I've just released an audio course based on Total Leadership. It's called Four Way Wins. It's on Himalaya Learning, which is an audio learning platform. They've got a great library of courses. You can listen to my course and others like it at Himalaya.com. And if you go to Himalaya.com slash wins, enter that promo code wins at the checkout, you can get your first 14 days free. Hope to see you there. New episodes of our show, Work and Life, they premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. Well, today's show... Um, I, I know it's going to be uh, relevant and fun for, for well, I think everyone who listens to this show. You've heard, no doubt, about the successful CEO or entrepreneur or professional or anyone really um, on business radio uh, talking about how much they learned from failure, uh, from rejection. And maybe you've just been through something like that yourself or someone you love, someone you care about, didn't get that job you wanted, you're project funded, you got turned down for something, a promotion. My guest today says that rejections, well, they're a part of every successful person's career. We know that, but she's really developed a, 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 a set of knowledge about rejections that change our lives that um, I found very useful. And I think you will too. Her new book, well, it seems to, it, it seeks to normalize rejections and encourages to talk about them especially women who are more likely to overthink and make it even more painful. Jessica Bacall is director of reflective and integrative practices and of the narratives project at Smith college up in Northampton, Massachusetts. One of my favorite towns. Uh, I taught tennis at a camp up in Cummington, Massachusetts about a million years ago, and I have really fond memories of Northampton. Uh, her new book is called The Rejection That Changed My Life. 25 powerful women on being let down, turning it around, and burning it up at work. Jessica, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me give listeners just a bit of background about you before we jump into our conversation. The new book is a sequel of sorts to Jessica's first bestseller. It's called Mistakes I Made at Work, 25 Influential Women on What They Got Out of Getting It Wrong. The Narratives Project at Smith encourages students to explore their passions and articulate their values and goals through personal storytelling. Before her career in higher education, Jessica was an elementary school teacher in New York City and Listeners of this show know that my youngest 
child, my daughter, is an elementary school teacher in another city in the Northeast. Jessica was then a curriculum developer and a consultant. She received her bachelor's degree from Carleton College in Minnesota, which has a great ultimate Frisbee team, and MFA in writing from Hunter College and an EDD from our University of Pennsylvania. So she's a, an esteemed alum of our great university. All right, Jessica. Well, um, I know that you courted your husband with a mixtape of your favorite Bruce Springsteen tunes. This is a little off topic, but when I read that in your book, I thought, okay, we, we've got to make sure we make room for that. Um, can you give us just like one or two of the cuts that were that was on that tape and why you weren't afraid of rejection in that instance? Uh Probably growing up. I love the song growing up. Mm -hmm. um, maybe promised land. We actually were just doing a Bruce Springsteen sing along the other night. So these are fresh in my mind. Those mm -hmm. are, those are two of my favorites. Um, why wasn't I afraid of rejection in that context? I think, um, you know, I really liked him. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's just, you know, I had this strong drive and sense of purpose. Um, but yeah, I'd always, um, it had never been a big deal to me to ask guys out. And um, yeah, it was terrible to be broken up with, you know, if I was with someone and got dumped, that felt bad. But um, I think I was a little more wary of putting myself out there in uh, non-romantic contexts. Luckily, yeah. my husband, it worked out. He, he, he too is a Springsteen fan, I gather. Yes. And he actually, I thought I was kind of introducing him. Oh, if you don't listen to Bruce Springsteen there, you know, there's so many great songs and he already loved Bruce Springsteen. So. That's good to know. We could spend probably a lot more time on this topic, but I'm not sure if listeners are going to tolerate that. Um, so let's let's move on and hold that for another conversation for another time. Jessica, uh, I'll just say that I completed a course this last semester in, in the English department at the University of Pennsylvania on Bruce Springsteen, his his life and music taught by the great Anthony DeCurtis, who is a scholar and a Rolling Stone editor and writer. Um, so this is a topic that interests me greatly. But I'm as keen to learn more about what you learned about rejection and how you're helping people use rejection in a way that perhaps they hadn't thought about before. I know you didn't write this book with the pandemic in mind. Um, at least that's what I infer from, from, from checking it out myself. But a lot of what's being written about now with respect to the pandemic and work is that for many people, the pandemic has caused well, a lot of kind of stepping back and reflecting on what's really important to them, what they value most. And many are making significant changes in their, in their work and in their lives. And I think that your insights about rejections at work function in a, in a kind of similar way. You know, there, there's a kind of uh, a deflating, of course, but as you write, they can be turning points for important uh, reevaluations uh, and, and fresh starts. Can you begins to describe some of what you found out about how women you interviewed manage rejections and, and, and how that's relevant for our current, our, our current moment. Mm, that's a good question. 
I think, um, well, I divide the book into four parts mm-hmm. and based on kind of the most salient um, ways that each group of women manage rejection. Um, and I'll just say that uh, one of the ways um, is by just feeling really um, upset and and sad at first. Um, I had a great um, interview with Angela Duckworth, who is a professor at University of Pennsylvania, as you know, and she developed the framework um, for grit, the theory of grit, which is you know about um, how people persevere through difficulty. Mm-hmm. And she was my first interview, and it really shocked me when she said, she said something like, more tears have gone into my husband's shirt collar than you can imagine. So, you know, she was telling me, um, you know, when I get rejected, I feel upset and I, it, it, sometimes I even cry. So, you know, that was kind of comforting for me um, that, you know, one way that people manage rejection is, um, you know, feeling their feelings. But then there was a lot about um, resilience and about the different ways in which um, my interviewees were able to be resilient in the face of rejection. And um, one, for example, is using rejection as data. Um, Laura Wong, who is a professor at uh, Harvard Business School, talked really explicitly about this in terms of um, sending out her articles. For example, when she was a new faculty member. She would keep track of co-authors when she sent out pieces to journals. And she started noticing um, that articles that she was sending out with kind of better known, well-published colleagues were being rejected at a higher rate than the articles she was writing on her own or with less well-known colleagues. And so that was useful to her as data. Where should she put her energies? Um, and I think, I mean, just stopping there with rejection as data, I mean, I think that, um, the, the things that are happening now with people with the pandemic, I mean, one way of using rejection as data is, um, you know, your own response to what's happened to you in the Mm -hmm. pandemic. And I think a lot of people are doing that. So people are, seeing, um, oh, you know, I was a lot happier when I wasn't working an 80 hour week, or I was Mm -hmm. a lot, I felt a lot better when I had more time uh, at home with my family. That that's data about that you can use uh, for moving forward with your life. Um, And that's important. Let's just pause and underscore that, that uh, the other elements being uh, creativity, being on the other side, rejection as a kind of muscle, taking a new path. We'll get into those other elements, but just to accept your feelings about what has happened, grief, loss, elation at, at not having to commute, what, whatever it is uh, that you're experiencing, uh, a good place to start is to acknowledge the, the painful feelings, the joyful feelings, whatever they are, because that really is important information, data, knowledge uh, that you convert it to when you start to think about, well, what does this tell me about, about me, about the path I, I, I want to try to carve for myself, the people I love, the, the people who matter to me, and, and what I really value now. I mean, there's been a, uh, 
just a surge of reevaluation based on people's reactions, emotional and otherwise, to these new circumstances that we have found ourselves in. So, so seeing rejection as data is, is where you start. Um, so w- why did you start with that section in the four major elements of uh, the book that teaches about how rejection can change your life in a good way? I think I, we started with that because um, it might have just been what my editor suggested. <laughs> but, you know, I thought that idea, um, when I've spoken about the book, that's the newest idea, it seems like, to, to people. And I don't think it's that, I don't think it's new that you might learn and gather information based on these different elements of a rejection experience. But I think in our, you know, calling that data in a world where, you know, we're so data-driven, we're so attentive to data, but sometimes we're less, um, we don't call these uh, observations of ourselves data, our observations of our own life. And that, that too is data. Um, and then again, as, you know, uh, speaking about Laura Wong, you know, um, you can, there's ways to take these, you know, experiences that are not, you wouldn't think are positive, like she's getting these pieces turned down by journals, and to really look at, okay, well, where is their interest? And what is, uh, what do those pieces have in common with each other? And what about the ones that are getting rejected? Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Jessica Bacall, who's the author of The Rejection That Changed My Life. And we're talking about uh, rejections as data and why, why they're so important to attend to. Um, there are stories in each of these sections uh, in the rejection uh, is data of part. You've got Angela Duckworth, Andy Kramer, Issa Watson, Sarah Koenig, Joan Williams, Laura Weedman Powers, Laura Huang, Marilyn Carlson Nelson. A number of these people have been on this radio show. Uh, which, which among these was your favorite story? Uh, because it spoke most deeply to you. Mm. I mean, I, I loved talking to Laura Weidman Powers. Um, she, I just think it's a really interesting story because um she is a young-ish woman. I guess maybe she's in her late 30s, early 40s now. But she is someone who, um, I think she went to Harvard undergrad, got an MBA from Stanford, worked in nonprofits and for-profits, um, and then moved because she was getting married. I think she moved to the Bay Area. And... Um, couldn't find a job. And she was sending out her resume everywhere. Um, and she, she almost got a job at Google and she, she got really invested in the idea of working at Google because it's Google. And, you know, she had heard about the culture there and she thought it would look great on her resume, Mm. but she wasn't getting hired anywhere. And meanwhile, this old friend of hers was saying, come work with me, come work with me. I have, I think we could start something. I have an idea about, starting an organization to get more women and uh, underrepresented people of color into tech. And, um, you know, Laura was really puzzled by why she wasn't getting a job. Looking back now, she thinks, okay, you know, my resume 
was showing I'm a black woman. I, um, she had been in the Harvard, you know, black students union. There were these different signs that she was black and she wonders, there's no way to know, but she wonders if by knowing what she knows about um, Silicon Valley, if some bias was playing into whether she was, you know, uh, into her not getting an interview. Um, and there's no, there's no way to know that. But what's interesting is that she decided to go where she was wanted, like to go where the energy was. And she just decided in the end, you know, I am going to partner with this guy. And they started this organization called Code 2040, which immediately gained traction, got funding. And um, she's no longer there anymore, but she's, uh, you know, it's a very successful nonprofit that's done a lot to move the needle on um, getting women and underrepresented people of color into tech. So what is it that you like about that story and that resonates with you? I think that sometimes, you know, you, you think you're supposed to, the idea that she was supposed to work at these, um, like a big deal company and that a brand. Um, you would, yeah, a brand and that that would give her kind of a certain cachet she would be able to tell people she worked at Google and that was so appealing. Um, but in the end, doing something that was closer to her heart with someone who believed in her um, led to good, led to good things. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, in my own experience and, and also in my interviews, I've heard this, you know, partnering or joining with people who believe in you where you can move something forward that, um, that matters to both of you can um, can really make a difference in your career. It can it can move you along. Now, in the case of Laura uh, that you just described, there were these rejections that were, in some ways, forcing her to reevaluate. Well, maybe I should listen to those other voices and those other inclinations to be, you know, moving you know towards where. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's interest in what I bring. How, how in your book, do you, do you help people to tune in to those really important uh, signals so that they can make smarter choices about their work, about their lives? Hmm. Um, I think it comes out in the interviews, you know, just seeing it modeled in the stories, but then in the back of the book, we include I include seven exercises that are modeled on work I have been doing at Smith. Um, and they're really about starting to develop a habit of reflection or deepening the habit of reflection that you already have. Um, and I think that they, they can, if you really engage in these exercises, you know, ideally with a friend, a trusted friend, mm -hmm. they can help you, um, connect a little more deeply to what's important to you. But rejection is painful. And that, that's, you sort of start and kind of end with that. The, the, so, so what is the recipe uh, for, for avoiding the kind of deflation and despair of rejection and instead finding the value in, in perhaps unsettling and, and disheartening feedback of a rejection, particularly work rejection? What is it that we can do to be more resilient, to learn, to adapt. So it's so that we, we're, we're learning and that we're, we're looking not just back at what has been experienced as a failure, but to a future where we are sort of embracing and are embraced by um, the people around us who, who care about 
who we are, what we bring, where we fit best. So it, it starts with grasping, you know, the, the nature of the experience for you, the, the data of rejection. What else does it take? I think um, it comes out in some of these exercises. I mean, one, um, I'm really drawn to Kristen Neff's um, research on self-compassion. She's a psychologist at UT Austin. And, um, you know, your listeners may be familiar with her work, but there's essentially three elements to self-compassion. One is that mindfulness of just allowing yourself to feel your feelings. Um, the second is talking to yourself like you'd talk to a close friend. So, you know, I think there's a tendency often, um, especially with ambitious people to think that we need that kind of uh, whipping, <laughs> self-flagellating voice like, oh, you know, you look what you did, you know, do it better next time. Um, and in fact, Neff has found that that interferes with productivity and that that self talking to yourself in a kinder way um, is actually better, is actually can makes people more productive, uh, allows for creativity and getting back into that state of into flow. Um, and then the third element of self-compassion is um, acknowledging universality. So there's this feeling, I think, after a rejection um, of being alone, of I'm the only one this has happened to. Mm. And, you know, when in fact, it's, it connects you with the human experience, you know, everybody experiences rejection and the feelings that come along with it. And if you can kind of acknowledge common humanity with others, that that's useful too. So I think Kristen Neff's theory of self-compassion is a useful place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, go ahead. And, and and that universality of 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 rejection uh, of of the the protagonist of your life uh, coming up against uh, some some cold reality that is uh, getting in the way of uh, of of your desire for a, a better world, a better tomorrow. I mean, this is the stuff of legend. It is the stuff of drama. It is the stuff of poetry. It is the, you know, the very stuff of human experience. And to, to acknowledge that uh, is, is, uh, is helpful, of course. Why is it that so many of us don't know how to do that? Have any insight on that from the stories that you heard and have written about in your book? Hi, I, you know, what I think is that... Um... Maybe for really ambitious people, we're just um, naturally uh, self-critical, you know, and, and always wanting to do better, do more. And it can kind of, it, there's this internal snowballing where that, that um, the critical, self-critical piece is amplified, um, especially after a rejection. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think for women, especially, you know, we live with a lot of messages about, you know, how we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. And um, I think women are socialized to be approval seeking and, you know, rejection is the opposite of that. And so I think, especially for women, but I I think it's true for everyone, you know, there's, um, we're, (laughs) rejection is the opposite of approval. I I don't know why people are so hard on themselves though. I mean, 
Um, I think it can come from a lot of different places. I think it can come from, you know, family. It can come from the kind of um, educational environment that you grew up in. I mean, uh, it can come from like, you know, years of kind of an organizational culture where maybe, um, you know, if growth mindset is not encouraged, you might internalize the voice of a particularly kind of harsh supervisor. So I, I think there's, there's a lot of places this can come from, um, mm-hmm. you know. So um, we're going to have to take a break in, in just a few seconds here, but um, I want to talk about the, the notion of creativity on the other side and what it means to have rejection as a muscle uh, and how uh, the other people that you talk to inform your uh, research and your workbook. There are these seven exercises we've talked about, one of them practicing self-compassion, but I- I'd like to get into a few of the others uh, when we return. Let me just uh, remind listeners, this is Work and Life. Where I'm speaking today with Jessica Bacall about her new book, The Rejection That Changed My Life. So we're going to take a short break. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll be talking about more of these very practical ways of dealing with a universal experience, rejection, and how to make the most of it and grow from it. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, the Wharton Leadership Program. And I founded Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find creative ways of, well, producing harmony among the different parts of life while making things better in all of them. It is possible. It can be done. Learn more at TotalLeadership.org. My guest today is Jessica Bacall, who is the Director of Reflective and Integrative Practices at Smith College. That sounds like a fun job. And we're talking about her new book, The Rejection That Changed My Life, 25-plus powerful women on being let down, turning it around, and burning it up at work. So, Jessica, let's, let's get into some more of the exercises, because I think those are so useful uh, to so many different kinds of people. We talked about practicing self-compassion. There are seven others. Uh, tell us about one or two others uh, that, that you think are most relevant uh, for people these days. Mm-hmm. Well, there's one that um, I really like. It's actually the last one. Uh, okay. And it's exercise seven. Imagine you are being interviewed for this book. Cause my, my book um, is it's interviews that I turned into essays and Mm-hmm. What I ask people to do is um, write about an experience of disappointment or rejection. So some, something that didn't go as you hoped, and it could actually be in work or in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do it. If you don't feel like writing, you can do it um, in conversation with a friend mm-hmm. and then really try to zoom in on one moment. So where were you? Who were you with? What was happening? And describe it almost like you're describing a scene in a movie. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to think about in this moment of disappointment or rejection, what did you do well? Or what did you learn? You know, what came out, what, what skills or 
capacities were you practicing or what values were evident? Um, and then, you know, think about, you know, what, what are these parts of yourself that allowed you to, to um, even during that crappy moment, you know, even the, during this disappointment, um, what is it about you that allowed those things, to, uh, allowed you to do those things well? Um, and I think hmm. partly what this can do is to try to help you identify what um, educators have called tacit knowledge, you know, what you what you know, but you don't know that you know about yourself. Um, and how the part of the reason that's useful is then you can begin to articulate that outwardly. You know, when you go on an interview uh, or when you're talking about yourself in a professional or non-professional context to, you know, talk about, to really own, uh, you know, this is who I am. And here's an example. Here's an example of how this uh, came out. So it takes that, that work of, uh, and discipline, I would say, of, of active, conscious, deliberate reflection on your experience to be able to uh, elicit the tacit knowledge that you can then use in so many different ways, mm-hmm. not least being uh, really changing your own self-perception uh, and, and seeing yourself uh, as, as uh, more competent, uh, leading to greater confidence in, in taking you know, new paths. Uh, that's a great activity. And yet, as you say in the beginning of the book, there were people who said, no, I'm not doing this. Why would you bother talking about rejection? Let's just talk about my success. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because, well, tell us why. I mean, what makes it hard for people to do what you just uh, recommended? Well, it's puts you in a really vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it was so amazing that all these women did agree to talk with me about work rejections. You know, um, yeah, there was definitely someone uh, who I approached for an interview who said, does rejection have to be in the title of your book? Because I, I don't think that should be in the title. I hate that word. And mm-hmm. um, Well, it is painful. And we are socialized to, 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 to reject the idea of being rejected, right? Yeah. It's so, scary. so how do you get past that? How how should listeners get past it? The scary. <laughs> what is it that 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 needs to be overcome to be able to to do the the difficult work of of looking at your rejections and, and learning from them? You know, I think um, it has to be an understanding that it's part of anyone's career, you know, any successful career. Um, what I learned in, in developing this book, you know, these people not only kind of develop these muscles for coping with rejection, but sometimes they even sought it out. You know, um, that was really surprising to me. There's this woman, uh, Emily Winter, who's a comedy writer, and uh-huh. she embarked on this project of collecting a hundred rejections. And, you know, that wasn't the only time that I um, heard that from people. I just yesterday was talking with a group of colleagues um, and this Smith professor said, oh yeah, I, I try to get 50 a year. So I, I think in a certain way, that's- a, This isn't taking, masochism. No, I think it's taking control over the, the process and mm. um, allowing yourself, it's a kind of muscle, emotional muscle memory in a certain way. Um, you know, just, all right, this rejection came in, I'm sending the new article out or I'm sending the new resume out. Um, I, I think that 
that purposeful seeking of rejection, I think that's what it can give people, this sense of uh, taking control. And that you can develop a kind of strength in, in your, your capacity to somehow respond to that. I see Roz Chast, one of my favorite cartoonists from, in The New Yorker, uh, is among the people who you spoke to and whose story is in the part three, Rejection is a Muscle. What did you learn from Roz about that? Because I'm well, sure as a cartoonist, she's sending out stuff that gets rejected by the cartoon editor. Well, in her previous years, uh, in the early years, probably today, anything she writes is, is, is accepted, but maybe not. What did you learn from her? Well, that was the amazing thing. So she said most of what she sends to The New Yorker is rejected. So she's still, making- still, yeah. yeah. Even after having done who knows how many covers of The New Yorker, she still gets stuff rejected by the editor. Every week. I mean, that is being Roz Chess. She she has to pitch, you know, she develops, she draws these cartoons. She sends a whole bunch. She says most of them are rejected. Hmm. And so that, yeah, that was a real surprise to me. Who would reject Roz Chess? So how does she, what did you learn from her about, about strengthening those muscles? She was interesting. She just said, you either have to do it or you don't. You know, for her, she's an artist. She just feels like I had to do this. There was no other choice. I was going to be an artist. I was going to keep drawing. Um, I mean, part of it is it's her job. So she has to, um, she has to do it. Um, But she, she says that she just feels this internal drive. And she, she said to me, you know, if you don't, if you feel so, um, kind of knocked off your game that you can't continue. Maybe there is something else that would make you happier. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an interesting perspective. So, well, that's, that's perhaps a good segue for us to talk about um, creativity being on the other side of rejection and, and taking a new path. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other major sections of the book. Um, w- what's the essence of what you learned about this idea of taking a new path that people discover from the experience of rejection? You know, basically that, sometimes um, a door is closed and another one can open and it might not happen right away. So um, my close friend from childhood started a company um, that was bought by private equity and and then she was pushed out. She was just, first she was kind of demoted, then she was pushed out completely. Um, You know, this is a company she helped found. And she was miserable, you know, she felt awful, but then she, she's a creative person. So she's naturally going to want to make new things. She's also always been entrepreneurial since she was like six. So she partnered with her mom and um, her mom is an expert on color and they wrote a book on color. She started a company with her husband and um, you know, this is my friend is Ariel Ekstut. She says that it was really those partnerships that allowed her to take the new paths that um, this new path, that was the key. And she thinks that each person has a different key. And I, I love that. Um, A different key? A different key. Like it was the partnering that allowed her to pivot. She realized that if she has a partner in these creative projects, um, that will help her move forward. Hmm. Um, And so that's, you know, uh, an example of someone who pivoted after, you know, a major rejection. Um, you know, and I can talk about, you know, with myself, I, um, 
I'm 50 and I, in my late forties applied for a major, um, to run a major new center at Smith college. And it was a, uh, kind of a humiliating rejection when I didn't get the job because I'd really put myself out there among colleagues. Um, but I think what was key for me in staying at Smith where there were people who um, helped me, well, I knew the work that I really loved was teaching and there were other people who saw that and they gave me a, the chance to teach this class called Designing Your Path that I'm actually loving. And I, I feel like even though I've been at Smith for a while, I'm the happiest I've been. So in a sense for me, the key was, you know, have being having colleagues and supervisors who we're willing to sit down with me and think about uh, what the next step was. Yeah. So sometimes rejection leads you to uh, opening yourself up to new possibilities and to new people in, in ways that, that can be ever more fruitful. Maybe the rejection is, is just what you needed uh, to, to become more of the person that, that you want to be. I want to remind listeners, Hey, this is work in life on business radio, Sirius XM one thirty two. Really glad you're with us today. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking with Jessica Bacall, who's the author of a wonderful book that is really for all of us. Stories of women, but it's really for everyone. The Rejection That Changed My Life. Uh, You can learn a lot from it. We're not going to have time to get into uh, the other exercises, but you have a feel now, folks, for what's in here in terms of these very practical tools. I, I want to get to, before we have to wrap, um, how parents can use these ideas in their uh, leadership challenge of, of helping to rear the next generation. You're a parent. Uh, what have you discovered, Jessica, um, about rejection that has helped you be the mother you want to be? Mm. I I think parents probably don't model um, resilience in the face of rejection often enough because, you know, I think um, these might be conversations about work, about hard things at work um, might happen, you know, behind closed doors with friends or with a partner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've, um, I've tried to talk with my kids about how, you know, even though I didn't get the job that I worked so hard to, um, to get, uh, even though I, I applied for a job that I didn't get, I was okay. And it's actually led to other new projects that I love. So I think, you know, being able to share some of your own rejections when you feel ready with kids um, can be useful. How do you know you're ready and that it's not going to scare them? Of course, it's different for a four-year-old than it is for a 14-year-old, yeah. uh, but any, any general guidelines there in terms of uh, what's okay to share and what's not? I think you want um, to be feeling okay when you share it and not you don't want to be... Um... Distraught and crying and yeah. screaming and pounding the table and yeah. wondering I mean, <laughs> why the world is so cruel. I was talking about with a friend Cause you know, for the first time, my daughter saw me cry and I don't even remember actually what it was about, but you know, I was talking to a friend. I was saying, Oh, I wish I feel bad that I cried in front of her. And my friend said, I think it's okay. You know, and I, I do think it's okay to 
cry once in a while in front of your kids. But I think at the same time, you want to then show them, okay, I was sad and then I went for a walk and now I feel better. Or I was sad and then I talked to uh, my partner and now I feel better. So helping, you know, modeling that it's that you do, you might be upset, but that you have ways of figuring out how to, how to feel better. Um, And if you are talking about rejection, you know, making sure the kid understands that, um, that it's going to be okay. That even if it was a work, um, I think kids at any age, even, even a teenager, um, that it's not going to, um, that your, your biggest, your priority is keeping them safe and that they're your priority. Um, I think is, is important. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and what you said in the first part of our show about self-compassion about the universality of rejection as a, as a human experience and about what you learn from it. I, I, I think that's a, a powerful element, uh, which you know, a number of your exercises, really uh, the whole book, I think, helps you to, uh, to become more skilled at describing what it is that you take from this experience and that you, you know, becomes a part of you in a way that you choose, that you have some control over and that, uh, that there's opportunity for new wisdom uh, in, in the experience of rejection and to convey that to children is surely uh, an empowering and ennobling uh, kind of act for us as parents. You were a, an elementary school teacher. We talked about that at the very top. Um, how does, how, reflecting back on that experience uh, in light of what you've been learning about uh, mistakes people have made, about rejections they've experienced. Um, what are the implications for, for education? Hmm. Well, you know, I do think um, that, you know, we need to talk to kids about failure more often. And um, I was just talking to a colleague at Smith about this, and this is actually for college students, but I mm-hmm. think it would be useful for younger students as well. You know, we're planning to embed in our in our fall course opportunities for students to fail on purpose, and we're going to model that as well. And we're uh, so, for example, you know, um, I might try to roast a chicken. I'm, I'm I just am always nervous about my about chick, you know, roasting a chicken, and uh, <laughs> it's never come out right. So I might make a short film of myself doing that and ask other people, the students, to um, take small risks at which they might fail, and then share those with each other. Um, and I think to make it normal, yeah, normalizing it. And, you know, the bar can be low at first. It doesn't have to be, oh, I'm putting myself out there for a Fulbright, but, you know, how can we, um, encourage college students and, and younger people to practice failure in small ways, um, and talk about it and talk about how it feels. And, and what do you think is the important lesson for managers of people at work to take away from the knowledge that you've accumulated here in this book about rejection? Mm. Well, I, you know, I, I really um, believe in this idea of the growth mindset organization and that, you know, a really high functioning organization is one that um, 
talks about when things don't go uh, when things don't go well, what can be gained from that, and it doesn't make people feel afraid to share mistakes or failures, um, but uses them as learning opportunities. And I, you know, I think it's the same with rejection. You know, um, a, a group that is vying for a big contract and doesn't get it. You know, how can the managers, um, without blaming people, kind of tease? tease apart, uh, you know, what happened, but also um, <laughs> model self-compassion, model, you know, resilience and, you know, okay, we're, we're going to learn from this and it's on to the next thing. This is how we, we grow our business or, you know, move forward in whatever uh, our work is. And what, what would you say to the, to the manager who would counter with, uh, well, we, we, we have no tolerance for failure here. We can't, we can't really accept that. Um, and people who can't perform uh, with excellence consistently don't belong here. I think, you know, uh, it's worthwhile for companies to invest in people's growth. I mean, it's financially sound rather than spending all the money on, um, you know, the hiring process is, is expensive. So I think if you have people who need to learn, I think uh, it's ideal to provide an environment and tools for them to learn and not um, turn, you know, one failure or a couple of failures into something that has to dictate the the future of someone's career. I mean, it's obviously going to be um, different for every person, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, ideally organizations are going to be providing um, employees with, with opportunities to learn and to grow. And I think that's good for, for whole companies. For sure that, and, and continually, uh, but it's uh, there's a tension there and, and it really requires skill uh, and intention to be the kind of leader at any level uh, and in any life role where your orientation is toward learning, uh, towards future growth. Um, we're just about out of time here. You know, the, all the stories here are stories of women. How does this book speak to men? Well, we all experience rejection. <laughs> and uh, I think just like you might pick up a novel uh, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a black woman and you pick up a novel by a white man, it might still resonate with you and vice versa. You know, I think that, um, these are universal, um, experiences I, and, uh, and feelings and tools. I actually just had this young man, um, write to me, uh, last week who had gotten rejected from a bunch of colleges and he'd found my book in Barnes and Nobles. And he said, he, uh, he just sat down and read it. It was so helpful to him. And I was on his, he's a, an undergrad now, mm -hmm. but I was on his podcast. And so, you know, it resonated with him. I think it, it does resonate with guys. Yeah. I think there are different challenges for men. And, and one of the reasons why Bruce Springsteen is, is a, is a hero of mine and about whom I have written on a number of occasions and in a couple of different books is because he is so articulate about the various rejections and failures of his own life and how he's able to transform those experiences into, well, through his art and through the way that he tries to live into, into wisdom of a kind that is quite practical and, and, and profound. So it's, it's no surprise that we both share an admiration for that great artist. Um, well, uh, Jessica, what, in 30 seconds, what, what's the, the most important idea that people can take 
from the rejection that changed my life, your wonderful new book? Rejection can really hurt at first, but you can build a tolerance for it. You can build muscles uh, for dealing with rejection. And just in the way you might start with push-ups on your knees, you can start by uh, even seeking out small rejections and then work up in order to practice uh, building resilience. Work up to practice with small rejections. Well, that's the note I'm going to put uh, when we when we post this online to, as a practice. That's a great idea. Um, and you know, when when your children read this book, uh, what, what are you hoping they're going to react with if they haven't yet? Mm, no, they haven't read it. You know, I hope they'll feel a sense of permission to take risks, and that you know, other people's. Um, Other people not wanting you, whether it's at a job or a college, that that is not um, a, that doesn't dictate anything about you, your central, your personhood. You know, you're still you, whether you're accepted or rejected at, at, you know, or not, you're still valuable as yourself and someone else doesn't get to decide that for you. Hmm. Yeah, well, it, it is truly an empowering and wise idea You know, I start my courses on total leadership. The very first thing that we do, people have done some writing about who they are, where they've come from, where they want to go, what they care most about in life. That's the opening. Um, But the place we begin, you know, two minutes into the very first class is in a small group, tell a story about something that happened to you that changed you and that helped you to articulate what matters most to you in your life. And invariably, those are stories of, of, of failure, of rejection from which they have learned something important. And you've, you've brought together a body of uh, stories and wisdom here that's really valuable. And Jessica, I much appreciate your, your taking the time to share it with us today. How can listeners find out more about the work that you're doing? You can uh, look at jessbacall.com. That's my website. You can also check out the Narratives Project at Smith College. All right, then. Uh, thank you again, Jessica, for being my guest. Really appreciate your time today and the great work that you're doing. Thanks for having me, Stu. It was great. And thank you for joining us, for listening in. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. More fun, more wisdom, I hope, for you in all the different parts of your life. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email me, Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu, and our station at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter. SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. And you can find podcast versions of this show in a little while at totalleadership.org, where there's all kinds of other stuff, free resources like videos, book chapters, articles, and more about how we help people find harmony and improve performance in all parts of life. And hey, do check out my new course, Four Way Wins on Himalaya Learning. It's Himalaya.com slash wins. Enter the promo code wins at checkout. Get the first 14 days free. Hope to see you there. All right. Thanks, Patty Hall, for producing and sound engineer Chris Tooks. You guys are the best. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.